Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. Today I'm speaking with Hainan Jang from Why Hangry. Now, have you ever wanted to have a dinner party at home with friends, but either you have no idea where to start with the menu, or you just don't have the time or the energy to cook up a fabulous meal for your guests? Wouldn't it be amazing if you could simply hire a chef who would cook the menu you selected with all the ingredients delivered to your door, and if you want them to do all the cleaning up, they'll do all of that too, and it, without it breaking the bank? Well, if you're like me, um, you're probably nodding your head and saying, yes, 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 I would like all of those things. And so you'll absolutely understand why Heinen and her co-founder Sidi Mittal launched Why Hangry in December 2019, just a couple of years ago. And as you can imagine, this is a business that really took off during the pandemic. Why Hangry has already got 130 chefs on its books. They have served over 7,000 customers in London and they've held over 1,000 dinner parties. And in March 2021, um, Heinen and Sidi raised £1.1 million in funding from angel investors to help them take the business to the next level. So let's meet Heinen and discover more about her fundraising journey, the challenges she faced and learn from her top tips for success. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Julia, and super glad to be here. Obviously, um, we met ages ago when Why Hangry looked completely different and when we were literally just at the start of our journey when City and I pitched at Albright um, for a female founders pitching event and we kind of stayed in touch. So glad to be on the podcast. Whilst you were speaking, I was, I think, trying not to nod profusely, but <laughs> I was definitely nodding and I guess... Um, about myself and also city and how we started Why Hangry. So I am German Chinese. I was born in Germany, lived here where I am currently for 10 years before moving to Beijing and lived there, did high school and moved to London for university. Somehow fell into finance uh, and started my career on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs, where I was covering hedge funds for fixed income products. Then after three years, I was headhunted to Barclays, where I met my amazing co-founder, who you also met at the pitching event, Sidi Mittal. She was one of the toughest traders on the floor. And initially we were just colleagues, but then we became really good friends when we realized that we were both secretly dating someone at work. Luckily, not the same person, but it's kind of it was the reason why we actually became really close friends as opposed to just work colleagues. And then we realized after that, that we had other things in common, like the entrepreneurial streak. Both of our fathers um, are entrepreneurs. They started their own business. So one could say it kind of runs in the family to want to do something, build something yourself. So we were always thinking about different ideas, how things could be improved and just kind of like, 
in thought, innovating upon things in our everyday life. And one thing that we realized is we were spending so much time going out to restaurants or bars and we're probably going out four, four to five times a week to hang out with friends. Although we really miss spending some more quality time at home. And I guess at the point we were treating our homes like hotels, we're waking up, going to work, going to restaurants or, or bars afterwards, and then going back and barely spending any quality time at home. Having grown up in developing countries, it was obvious to us that having access to a chef would solve our problem. We realized that hosting used to be such a huge thing in so many cultures, whether it's in the UK, like the dinner party culture used to be so prevalent and same with the US and Asia, that's still the case because a lot of people have help. Labor is cheaper and it's not a hassle. Whereas in Europe, let's say, or in London, a lot of hassle is involved with inviting friends over. So that's a problem that we wanted to solve. Millennials had killed the dinner party because we're a generation convenience and we wanted to create a convenient option to actually have your friends around. Yeah, I mean, it's such a brilliant idea and it's one of those ideas and they're always the best ideas where you kind of think, why has nobody done this before? Um, amazing. So, 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 so you had this idea when you were both working in banking. Um, so at the start, how did you go about kind of getting it off the ground? Um, did you do it as a bit of a side hustle? Yes. So whilst we were still working in finance, we started building a very, very basic landing page, putting a survey together uh, using Airtable and then put using PDFs to create some menus. And then we reached out to our friends and colleagues and basically made them book chefs <laughs> in order to get some real customer feedback, real customer, obviously. And that was, those were the initial bookings where we realized that, wow, people were amazed at the fact that they could book a professional chef to come and cook for a hundred pounds all in, including groceries. And that could be enough food for, let's say, six people in a dinner party, or it could be batch cooking for more than a week and they could have the food whenever. So at the time we were testing two different things and we realized from the initial feedback of our beta testers that social virality and the element of getting together really is the stronger, let's say the stronger emphasis. And we then decided to double down on that, to really create our offering around dinner parties, get togethers, I mean, I think a dinner party is just so different from going to a restaurant. It's more personal, I guess. You're inviting someone into your home and it can turn into a games night. It can turn into a dance party or you can have some conversations that you wouldn't have in a restaurant with people sitting 50 centimeters away from you. And that's where the real value was for our beta testers, rather than having batch cooked meals where you can use alternatives such as Detox Kitchen or My Fresh Fitness Food, which are businesses that actually give you more information when it comes to macros of like nutrition and everything that's kind of calories. And that's not we want what we wanted to pursue further. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's such a, the whole idea of a dinner party, you say, it's so positive, it's so sociable, the atmosphere is incredible, making all that easier is a godsend, and also just the network effect of having 10 people in the room who perhaps haven't discovered why hungry before, and all of a sudden do, and they're experiencing it. 
So I imagine that that lends itself to very fast growth. (laughs) I guess what you mentioned there is like people who have never experienced it before. And it's super. So a the network effects and also like word of mouth for us is so, so powerful. More than 40 percent actually before COVID, it was even more than half of our customers found out about us via word of mouth because you attend a dinner party and there is a chef and immediately you're like, wow, <laughs> yeah. party. Impressive, isn't it? how much did this cost? And then the host would be, would probably, either they won't give that information and want to seem like very booty and very like um, chic, or they'll say, you can book a chef from 100 pounds like and then that's such a wow factor because it's such a premium service without the premium price tag and then when we did some surveying and some research into our initial um, amazing pioneers let's call them we realized that 70 percent of our customers had never experienced a private chef before and we found a really crazy analogy actually with uber where our customer is exactly the same customer who wasn't using black caps before Uber existed. Mm. So yes, yeah, social virality network effects are you're making, it, you're making it so accessible for everybody, which is wonderful. And I imagine also that there's a, there's an interesting effect for people who are working in the catering industry, people who are chefs, what's happening there. You're giving them some great opportunities. Yeah, so I think the chef industry is such a tough industry. I, um, two things. One, I watched the movie Burnt with Bradley Cooper. It really shows how tough it is to work in a restaurant. But also when we started, um, City and myself, we started accompanying our chefs to some of the bookings as KPs or sous chefs to experience 360 what it's what our offering actually is we could obviously not go to a customer's home and just be there hey we're the chef obviously we're not great at cooking but we wanted to know what it's like for a chef in order like to actually go to a customer's home what the difficulties are what type of communication we need to improve we had a lot of learnings that we made through that but more towards the chefs and the chef industry so in order um, if we look at the chefs that we work with I think what's crazy is that working in a restaurant is extremely tough. You work M&A hours, often 100 hour weeks sometimes, and you get paid very little unless you are a celebrity chef. And then in order to become a private chef, there used to be a lot of hurdles. You have to market yourself properly and to create a website. You need to create menus. You need to do a lot of um, admin. And that's kind of how our platform is disrupting the industry because we've created a platform that takes care of menu curation as well as the grocery logistics such that the chefs can easily become, so restaurant chefs can easily become private chefs without all the effort of marketing, admin, and so on. Mm -hmm. So for them, um, obviously, I think we're biased, but based on the, sh- the chefs that we speak with and the feedback we get, they love working with my hangry and they love doing private jobs because the biggest difference or the biggest benefit of working as a chef and chefs, they're passionate about food. They don't choose to become chefs because the money is great. And what makes them very happy is seeing the reaction of people when 
their food is ready. They create beautiful food. And when they're in a commercial kitchen, they don't get to see the happy diners. Unless you're like the head chef of a Mission Star restaurant, they don't just get to walk around saying, hey, how was this? And whereas as a private chef, you're cooking for a group of friends and like, oh my God, this is amazing. How did you do that? What's in here? Can you describe this? And people are really enthusiastic and chefs love that because they're so passionate. And yes, I think we're creating um, a great platform for chefs to work with us. Yeah, wow, incredible. Your energy is absolutely infectious, I have to say. I'm not surprised that you radiate that through your whole business with your chefs and the way you market to consumers. I think I'm only at, let's say, 80% of my energy right now. If City was here, I think we'd both be at like 150 or something. <laughs> probably power the grid in the, in the whole of the UK. <laughs> Oh, like so, so obviously, I mean, this is an incredible concept that I'm sure spent you spent quite a bit of time kind of tweaking and developing and all that kind of stuff. So, so you're doing it as a side hustle at the start, and you put your own money into the business at the beginning. Yes, we did. So we initially bootstrapped, yeah. and we then decided that we are onto something when we got the first customers who were not our friends and who gave us feedback. Basically, that was the mom test, right? So realizing that people who are removed second, third degree actually love what we were offering. For us, it was the signal, hey, we're onto something. Let's quit our jobs and do this full time. So we kept bootstrapping and really validating the concept. Obviously, a few beta testers saying great things doesn't mean that much. Like how much can we actually generate in terms of um, let's say bookings and reviews and people telling others. And for us, once we've validated the concept, which is when we started getting repeat customers uh, who are strangers, we realized, yes, we are definitely onto something and we should probably now raise a friends and family round and build a real, let's say, product as opposed to just an MVP that looks very basic and doesn't instill a lot of trust. So in November 2019, uh, whilst we were at the Google residency program, which we joined uh, in the summer right after we quit finance, we raised um, 150k pre-seed and that was the money that we used in order to test a lot of different marketing channels. Some uh, were more successful than others mm -hmm. and also built the product, which is the website that you can currently see which went live in September last year. Fantastic. So a kind of classic funding route in a way, bootstrapping at the start, then a friends and family seed round. I mean, tell us about that friends and family round. What did it feel like to ask people that you knew to back you? So we were extremely lucky um, in the sense that when we left finance, there were a few colleagues who really believed in us and basically then said, hey, when you guys need funding, when you guys want to raise, let me know. I would love to invest. So when we left in the summer, we were going to bootstrap and we obviously, there was also this element of we need to validate the concept. We don't want to just raise money, especially not from friends, given that we don't want to lose friends either if things don't go well. So we're like, let's just bootstrap, do this our, ourselves. And when we get to a certain stage, then we'll know whether it's right or not to raise. And then later in around, I think, October, September, something like that, like that we then had a customer um, who is also a friend of cities from university who was very insistent on wanting to invest and just seeing the potential. And she was the catalyst for our round, really, because we didn't want to raise money for a while. But then 
we had been speaking to founders to get advice and all of this. Um, and given we're first-time founders, we reached out to a network, anyone who started a business to leave, and leave, left finance. And they recommended, hey, if there's money on the table, take it. It's always better to raise versus not raise if you think you're onto something. And then we just thought, okay, well, we have someone who's very, very insistent on wanting to invest. And we also had other people who wanted to invest when we left. Why don't we reach out to them and see how, um, whether we can make this around? And that's what happened. So we didn't actually ask anyone who hadn't expressed interest and we didn't really pitch to anyone at that stage. Yeah, but that, I mean, that proves that you're really onto something. I think obviously you've got a good network, you've got customers who love what you do, and you've got people kind of, you're magnetizing people towards you who are falling over themselves to invest. I mean, you know, what, I, I totally agree. Great to take the round. So, so you didn't go out and saying, right, we're going to raise X amount. You just kind of put the, put the word out then to see what would happen. So we just, um, we, whatsapped or yeah the people who had expressed interest and said hey we'll probably put a small round together I know you said this a few months ago um no pressure if not um if yes let me know how much you'd like to invest that's that was basically it so this recent fundraising round was very new to us given we previously didn't actually pitch yes okay so let's let's talk about this recent round which is you know, an impressive round, just over a million pounds at quite an early stage. And I want to talk about that in light of the pandemic, because obviously you did your friends and family round pre-pandemic. What happened when we hit March 2020? Wow. Um, extremely tumultuous year that we had as a business with social gatherings at its heart. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think that will put everything in perspective. So let's say March 2020, we started getting a lot of cancellations in February. This is when I guess um, COVID was just kind of spreading outside of China. And we just realized, wow, this is going to be very serious. And then when the lockdown was announced and everything was taboo and we couldn't operate, I moved in with City and her now fiance, um, because we wanted to be able to actually think about our business. Will it be viable after COVID? How long will this lockdown last? Like we just raised money, like what do we do? And yeah, so I moved in with City and Pira, um, initially thinking it won't, maybe a few weeks, who knows, ended up being, I think three months. And during that time we adapted our business model we weren't able to offer any physical dinner parties. And we had this amazing network of chefs who were all out of work. Either they were on furlough or they were actually just laid off. And we realized at the same time that everyone was cooking. Most restaurants were shut. So options on Deliveroo, Just Eat and so on were dwindling. And a lot of people had to cook for the first time in their lives and they didn't know how to cook. So we thought, wow, what about virtual cooking classes? We can create classes on Zoom and not only teach people how to cook, but also get people to hang out with each other in different households interact and do something interactive rather than just 
on a Zoom call and having drinks. But guys, let's do a cooking class together. Let's all learn how to make um, a lamb tagine or let's learn how to make dumplings. So we um, managed to actually do that and generate some revenue for our chefs as well as the business and teach people how to cook. The other thing that we realized is that people will be tired of cooking. There's There was this craze, I think, in like, March, April, May, everyone was making sourdough. Everyone was baking banana bread. <laughs> did you do those things? I didn't do the sourdough. I did. I mean, I always make banana bread, but I made more <laughs> banana bread than ever, I have to say. <laughs> exactly. So there was this craze, but we expected there to be a cooking fatigue. And I think we've felt it firsthand. So we set like our North Star for COVID for the lockdown was to increase engagement and brand awareness. So City and, and I, not great cooks, and we do not enjoy cooking that much, which is why we started the business. We went on Instagram live every single day for, I think, 44 days and cooked live in front of a tiny audience initially that slightly grew um, over the 44 days. And we were like teaching a recipe, either with our chefs or just ourselves. But we were doing that every day. And we realized on like day five that we were already fatigued. (laughs) And then we just we could just imagine that customers would get fatigued and that they will want to stop cooking. So we actually licensed our chef's home kitchens and we started offering a batch cooking delivery service. So um, that is the other kind of pivot or adaptation that we started offering. And that evolved into a picnic delivery when people were allowed to actually hang out in parks together in groups of less than six. And the picnic deliveries were quite popular in the summer. But then when we were allowed to operate normally again, which means physical chef at home dinner parties, which was June, July, August, and so on, we then realized, wow, our chefs miss interacting or actually cooking for people. They don't love being at home and cooking, batch cooking and packaging it up and sending it. They want to actually be real chefs and go into people's homes and cook for them there. So that's when we kind of stopped the batch cooking, but we're still offering virtual cooking classes. And they're actually really popular with corporates who haven't gone back to um offices and they're still working remotely because these corporates and these teams they're looking for ways to um feel like a team do some team bonding activities yeah so i mean talk about the queens of pivoting in 2020 that's about four or five different pivots that you've managed to do there in a year you know what that, that just that's what it's like being an entrepreneur on that journey is you i mean obviously 2020 was um off the scale in terms of the kind of adapt adaptations we had to make but that's what you do isn't it when you're a founder you hit a challenge you hit a roadblock and you find a way around it which you've clearly did whilst also growing your awareness and your brand and all of that good stuff so at what point did you think right we probably need to go out and do another raise here was it this time was this time much more of an active decision to go out and do that 100 percent. so we had um, a interesting, we had an interesting, let's say, post lockdown uh, period. So last year, July, August, after the first lockdown ease, we were growing 40 to 70% month on month, despite the eat out to help out scheme and everything like there was just a huge demand for um, dinner parties and for people to get together. And then that kind of, we stopped growing as fast when it came to the next few months because obviously like 
restrictions like household mixing and so on were implemented in starting from September. But in February this year, all of a sudden, we just had more bookings coming in. And our bookings are connected to our Slack channels. Every time we get a booking, it's like, just like that sound. And we're just like, wow, okay, there are lots of bookings. It's getting busier. And although lockdown still in place and we can only cater for households or bubbles, it seems like we need to think about hiring in order to be able to meet increased demand as we grow. And we then started looking at our projections. We started kind of um, planning and everything. And we just thought, okay, let's start fundraising. We want to raise 800K that will give us a certain amount of runway. And with that money, we can um, hire the people we need. And that's when we made the conscious decision, I guess, sometime in February. Okay, now you did something which I think everybody should be doing when they fundraise is you made a plan (laughs) and a very detailed plan about how you were going to approach that raise you looked at it like a military operation share share with the listeners how you did that because this is what all founders should be doing wow so we um created a notion page which we called weekly strategy breakdown, which was in our fundraising subfolder. And we kind of wrote down certain assumptions. And there are things that, A, how much we want to raise. At the, We started off wanting to raise 800K. And then the assumption is that we want to be oversubscribed and then have the option to maybe raise more. And then we kind of um, created a weekly plan, which was week one, week two, week three, week four. By week four, we wanted to have 800K committed and be done. And there were a lot of conscious decisions that um, we made, but I guess the biggest, um, the biggest thing was how we kind of approached the research side of things, as well as working on the pitch deck and the financial model. So a lot of things were going hand in hand and happening in let's say week one and we had weekly KPIs established. So maybe just um, as an example, we started off saying, okay, we've got like a rough model. We've got a rough pitch deck. Who is in our network of friends who are in consulting and finance and law or these different areas? We'll send them the pitch deck and get them to give harsh feedback. Then we'll send the finance people um, or hedge fund people our value, like our kind of financial model and everything so they can poke holes into that. And then we'll say, okay, week one on day three, we chasing X, Y, Z for them to give us back their feedback to make it like a very quick feedback loop and giving people pressure to give us feedback. And then... um, we yeah, also you've got, to, you've got to put that urgency on it haven't you exactly it just drifts on and I see this all the time where founders don't prioritize it it becomes bottom of the to-do list because it feels painful and, and it just and also not chasing up people enough so that it just drifts and also great 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 to get I mean the stress testing of your of your pitch assets it's so critical because the last thing you want to be doing is practicing on real life investors yeah We had so much feedback from so many great people. And then we, on the investor front, when we we started like just sifting through Crunchbase. So we were like super 
methodic and looking at and identifying potential angel investors. We would look at anyone who's invested in European or UK marketplaces or food tech businesses within, let's say, the past like three years. Then we'll look at similar like like founders of marketplaces and look at whether they invest. If they invest, they will be added to our investor CRM, um, prospective investor CRM as well. And then we would kind of, and then by week one, one of the other like KPIs was going through a list of like 200 investors and ranking them in order of relevance. Some people are have low relevancy because they don't really actively invest in the space or um, some people have super high relevance because they build a marketplace themselves and plus they also invest. So we kind of did that. And then um, week two or end of week one was reach out to all low relevancy angel investors mm-hmm. to kind of Pra- not practice, but uh, yes. Yeah, start start with the start with the ones where if it doesn't go well, it doesn't matter. Don't exactly. start with the best ones. Exactly. And, and the whole point about having an investor CRM so important. You're, you're it's a it's a sales process, and you have to manage it as such, isn't it? And it's qualifying at every point. Exactly, and laser I think focused, focused, really good around qualifying. Actually, um, what was great um, advice that we got from a fellow founder who was part of the Google residency program. She basically said to us, look, fundraising is so emotionally taxing. You have a great meeting and then nothing comes back, but you're ecstatic after the meeting. And then when it comes to chasing, it's like painful. Or you have people who just don't get it and you get a no. And it's like really, it's really like emotionally taxing and psychologically as well. So obviously you want to make it as short as possible, but you also need to make sure you create a matrix for your investors. Almost classifying the relevance will help you digest a yes versus a no. So someone who is, instead of feeling really down because someone gave you a no, actually analyzing and realizing this investor is completely irrelevant to you, maybe because they um, don't understand the sector or they um, usually invest in B2B. It's about about fit, isn't it? Rather than feeling rejected. Exactly. It's like qualifying people so that when you get a no from, let's say, a low relevant investor, you're like, oh, whatever, they're low relevant anyway. And you take it as practice. Whereas when you get a yes, or also when you get a no from someone who's more relevant, you can feel more strongly. It's like kind of hedging your emotions. Yes. And also the feedback you get from those high relevant investors can be incredibly valuable and it allows you to shift and adjust your narrative or to have to make it more effective. Yes. So brilliant. And, and there's a there's a obviously there's a piece in there which is about you need to speak to enough people and they need to be quality people. But you do have to speak to a lot of people, don't you? How many people do you think you spoke to on that round? So City and I um, decided to divide and conquer which is the best decision that we made, which really helped us to raise within weeks, because otherwise for one person to operate at that level of intensity when it comes to like calls and doing work and integrating feedback and improving things, and it's just like not sustainable. So it was like a sprint rather than a marathon that we decided to embark on. Um, and we're lucky that it ended up also being a sprint because you never know actually when you start you start out too quickly and realize that you still got another 30 miles to go before the finish line yes definitely I think in our prospective um, investor CRM we had probably 400 plus line I'm going to call it line items now 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that could have been like angel syndicates or it could have been individual people. We didn't reach out to all of them um, because as we started getting traction and introductions from people we spoke to, as well as from our network, obviously that kind of changed and we just adapted throughout. I would say we each did maybe, we spoke to maybe 50 people each. Mm-hmm. Um potentially sounds out right. I mean that's kind of quite typical and I think that it's really useful for people who are listening to understand that you know because I get people who they've perhaps only spoken to five investors had five no's and they just want to throw their hands up and give up and it's like uh-uh <laughs> you've got to keep going haven't you definitely so actually you should probably track the exact number that we did in the end in order to have a conversion rate as well Makes I'll make a note to do that after. (laughs) I love the fact that you're obsessed with KPIs. (laughs) We both just read this book, um, Measure What Matters. Measure What Matters is a great book, fantastic book, really important book. Yeah, so right now we're deeply impacted by it, as you can tell. Yeah, (laughs) so okay, so I love the way you approached it. Let's talk about the angel investors that you got on board. So tell us a bit about that. Who are they? And why are they important to you? How are they going to help you going forward? Oh, God. I mean, we have so many amazing angel investors. Um, I can't name them all, but I'll name, I guess, a few. Um, One of our actually first and most, like with the full, oh, God, I'm like literally so excited talking about this person that I don't know how to start. Um, is one of our earliest customers and it's a couple they are incredible and since they booked my hangry for the first time I think it was beginning of 2020 before COVID they had emailed us then saying when you raise investment let us know we love the concept we really think it has legs and we'd love to invest so they were part of the people that we also um, approached um, as we started getting ready as we started raising and um it's the support of actually our customers as well as our network of friends in finance and so on who are investing who invested in this round as well that has allowed us to have a very solid amount committed and conveying a certain level of FOMO to other business angels and that's really really helps I would never actually once you get that the cornerstone investors on board the rest kind of tip over don't they yes those first people is hard so if you've got somebody who knows you trusts you has experienced what you're doing that's going to be the best thing so um this customer or these two customers have been incredible and then I guess um some of the other investors some of which are also let's say call them VC angels there's Eileen from Passion, Carmen from Blossom, Martin from Index. Then we have founders such as Jack from Urban or Meg from A Day, who is such a cool female founder who gave us incredible advice during the fundraising process. They are, yeah, amazing people to have on board who will help us in so many different areas. And I guess the most obvious one, given we are speaking about KPIs, is 
<laughs> I literally just got off a call, um, as mentioned before this, running um, with running through our like KPIs, our goals, and what we're going to measure going forward with some of these investors. They are really bringing a very professional lens to our business and pointing us in the right direction because what city and I have done over the past year and a half since we started is test build things a bit scrappily in a very lean fashion and now that we've found early product market fit a we're hiring amazing people to be leaders of different areas within the business and really solidify that improve processes streamline operations and so many things that need to be done in a to strengthen the business and our investors are helping with that as well whether that is um going literally through numbers or kind of telling us about what they've experienced with other businesses what other businesses did well and what we can implement or whether that's speaking to jack who's built an amazing marketplace um that has very similar, let's say, um, lots of similarities when it comes to, I guess, the target audience. We are targeting probably a very similar similar demographic like urban and having um, scaled a marketplace, we can learn a lot from him. And then when it comes to, I guess, investors who have a background in marketing or branding, those are all areas where we want to improve. So we try to be very specific in asking our investors for help. We look at, I forgot what the phrase is, like how much experience someone has in something. I, I know someone smart wrote an article or a book about it, but we try to identify each investor's area of expertise. And when we have certain questions in certain areas, that's when we actually go to them as opposed to asking for generic help. Yeah, being very specific. I mean, what an incredible roster of angels. And I think, you know, you're clearly going to be on a path to more fundraising, it, I'm sure it won't be long before you're ready for a Series A. So all that kind of strengthening the business is so critical. And as you say, having it, what's interesting about having angel investors who are actually VCs in their own right, looking at Blossom, you know, Passion, Index, they're going to be fighting over you when it comes to your Series A round <laughs> and probably will all come in together, I would imagine. So you're teeing yourself up very nicely for that. So the lesson here, I think, for people to listen to is about the strategic thinking very strategically about the investors that you have on board and looking at how they can help you build your company in the way you want to. So you've done an amazing job of that. I mean, did you did you ever think about crowdfunding, given that so many of your customers clearly love what you do? You could have gone out much broader and had hundreds, if not maybe even over a thousand customers on board. So we kind of thought about it um, more throughout the process when we when someone mentioned it as a actually I think it was Jack who was like guys have you considered crowdfunding it's been extremely powerful um, for us and you are a direct to consumer business with a lot of people who are already customers who you can really turn into advocates of your business like real ambassadors who have invested money and the drawback on that front was the effort that needs to go in. We've also spoken to, I guess, uh, different people at Crowdcube and Cedars who have reached out. We are definitely a business that would um, benefit um, from crowdfunding, but we just had enough traction uh, from private, like non-crowdfunding investors. And we thought in the future, we'll definitely explore it. Maybe more as a marketing channel, 
we do have a lot of people who are emailing us now asking when we're going to crowdfund um, because they want to invest after having read the PR and everything. So yeah, it's something yeah. that we need to put on the back burner right now because we're focusing on hiring. But yeah, if it um, makes our customers happy to become shareholders in Hangry, and if it also can help us grow and reach more customers, definitely. I think you should. I'll definitely be investing if you crowdfund. That is for awesome. sure. I'll let you. I'll add yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, let's a couple more questions really before we bring our interview to a close. Um, I mean, everything seems so brilliant so far, but I know behind the scenes that there are always challenges. So, what what was the sort of m- most difficult thing? And I guess I suppose what would you do differently if you could start the campaign again, if anything? Um, definitely, I think. Um, big challenge was running the business, the day-to-day of the business. As mentioned, City and I decided to divide and conquer on the fundraising front, which was the best decision ever. But we also had to be sure that we have a strong team in place who can pick up the slack. And that happened brilliantly, but it was definitely a challenge that we basically delegated to the team and they faced that challenge and they did an amazing job. Then I guess what we would do a bit differently is um, we spent a lot of time on the model and on the pitch deck going back and forth, trying to implement everyone's feedback, but it's impossible to build everyone's deck based on their feedback because there are so many different branches on strains of thought so I think we spend a bit too much time on the nitty-gritty as opposed to starting to reach out to people sooner and just getting on the well not phone but on a call or phone or having a meeting and talk about the business sooner so I mean it's such a common problem I see all the time people are on kind of version 27 of the deck and it's um you know, it will never be perfect. And sometimes that kind of perfectionism can hold us back and it enables us to procrastinate. Yes. Um, really. So it's very, very common. Yeah, so it's, that, that's, that's good advice for people to kind of stop trying to get it perfect and just get out there. Yeah. Um, okay. And um, any, any other sort of last, last couple of questions, really? One is, um, what's the top piece of advice that you would give to other female founders who are getting ready to raise investment? Um, so we got, as I mentioned, some amazing advice from Meg, who is one of the founders from a day. And I don't remember at what time exactly we started speaking to her, but she basically said, just be more cool. <laughs> I don't know. I think generally I and City as well, we're very bubbly. We're very enthusiastic and we get excited super easily. And maybe there's a tendency for women to do that more rather than men who are better at playing it cool. And she basically said, look, fundraising is like dating and you need to play the game. And you can't seem too keen that will come across as desperate. So you need to just calm down, just be a bit more cool. That's a great bit of advice. I mean, it is a bit like, you know, when you go dating on your first date, you say, yeah, so I really want to have a baby. What do you think? I mean, nothing can make someone run a mile more than that. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. Be more cool. I like that. Yeah. I definitely think that, um, 
we can work on that a lot, given that something happens. Uh, yesterday, I had a call with this amazing candidate for a role. And I was just like, not shrieking, but I was like, city, city, I need to speak to you. <laughs> Instead of just calm and collected, hey, let me know when you have time. I need to give you feedback on this call I had. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't want you to lose that incredible energy that you have. So there's a, ba- you know, there's a balance there. The balance. Don't lose the energy because it's absolutely infectious. <laughs> So what is next for you guys? What are you focusing on over the next year or or, or two? Um, I think super plainly building the best business. As mentioned, a lot of things uh, were built in a very lean and pretty scrappy way. All of that needs to be improved. We need to set really strong foundations in order to be able to scale, which will be our plan. We very much see ourselves as a business with global ambitions. And when we think about it, we're creating an alternative for people to spend time with friends at home, as opposed to going out, whether that's a bar or a restaurant, and that can be anywhere in the world. And what we aspire to is to, I think Airbnb and their belong anywhere really resonates with us because we like to get people together. We want people to feel like they belong, whether it's a dinner party with more meaningful social interactions rather than a transactional restaurant visit. But yeah, we need to focus on building a great business. And the number one for, I guess, the next few months will be to get the right talent in place. Well, you are definitely one to watch. I can't wait to see what you do next. Um, I really need to go and order one of your chefs to come and do some cooking for me. As soon as we are allowed to have more people over into the house, um, I will definitely be doing that. So thank you so much for sharing your journey. It's been wonderful. And um, we hope to hear from you again soon. Thank you so much, Julia. Pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.